Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. I hadn't planned on recording a podcast today. I did one yesterday and I figured I'd wait till Friday, get the non-farms payroll numbers and finish up the week with a Friday podcast. But so much action in the markets today that I just couldn't resist. I knew there'd be a lot of people who would be excited to get a podcast today. So we're going to have uh, a trifecta. We're going to have three days in a row of podcasts. And you know, before I even get into a lot of the market action today, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what I heard on CNBC this morning, because you know they're still talking about the rate cut that we got uh, yesterday, and the host, and I forget what his name was, but the host basically said, you know, six months ago, nobody could have possibly predicted, nobody would have believed that here we'd be today and the Fed would be cutting rates. And nobody could have possibly believed that the Fed would be ending the quantitative tightening program because it's now over, right? So according to CNBC, nobody could have possibly predicted this, yet it happened anyway. Well, wait a minute. Hello? I mean, what about me? I mean, I predicted it. I said it was going to happen. Now, I didn't say it on CNBC because they won't let me on, but I said it on my podcast. I mean, I even said it on their competitor network, Fox Business. I mean, maybe if they watched Fox Business a little bit, uh, they would have known about this. So, you know, really what they meant is nobody on CNBC saw it coming. None of their anchors, none of their regular guests saw an end to quantitative tightening. None of them saw uh, the rate cut. But I did. Not only did I predict that the Fed would cut rates, I predicted live that the December hike was the last hike and that the very next move by the Fed would be a cut. And that is exactly what they did. And not only did I predict that the Fed would stop quantitative tightening prematurely, I said that they would follow it up with a return to quantitative easing. Now, that part hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. You know, in fact, we get the balance sheet numbers from the Fed every Thursday afternoon. And today we got, I think, the final reduction in the balance sheet. We actually made it below $3.8 trillion. The balance sheet stood at $3.779 trillion. That's probably the low watermark. And we're probably going up from here. The question is when. But we know that we're not going any lower because the Fed already said that quantitative tightening is, is now over. But the bottom line is people did see this coming. Obviously, I'm not the only one, but CNBC's worldview is limited by this small pool of people that are allowed on the network and by their own anchors. And I think this is really just fake uh, financial news is really what you're getting there. You're not getting the real news. You're getting the real news on the Peter Schiff podcast. Now you can get some of it on Fox Business because I'm there. In fact, I was on today again 
uh, with Liz Clayman on the Clayman Countdown. We will put a uh, a copy of my appearance up on my YouTube channel probably later today or tomorrow. So if you missed it on Fox, you can see it on my YouTube channel, or you can go to the Fox Business Channel. I think they uh, they have a, a you know they keep a record or logs of uh, a lot of the interviews. So there's a good chance that they'll have today's interview on the site. But this is just the beginning, right? This rate cut, as I've been saying, is just the first step on a road to zero. Now, the Fed tried to pretend yesterday that that might not be the case, that this could just be a mid-course correction, that maybe there wasn't going to be more rate high, rate cuts, rather. And I said that's not true, that the Fed is going to be cutting rates. Now, a lot of people uh, were saying that, well, this rate cut was an insurance policy. You know what was the insurance policy? Donald Trump's tweet today announcing the imposition of another 10% tariffs on 300 billion uh, of Chinese imports uh, that weren't being tariffed. Now they're going to be hit by this 10% tariff. This is in addition to the other goods that are already being tariffed at 25%. Now, before this tweet came out, the Dow Jones was up by 250, 300 points. So it had pretty much made up most of yesterday's 350 point loss. And gold prices early this morning we're down about 10 bucks. Remember I said that gold was trading in a range between 1400 and 1450. Well, yesterday uh, we dropped about 17 bucks and this morning we were down over 10 bucks. We were very close to 1400, maybe about 1405 or something like that. But by the time the Trump tweet came out, gold was back positive. I think we had managed to eke out about a five to $10 gain. But as soon as Trump tweeted, about these tariffs, the stock market tanked. It went from up a couple of hundred to down over 200. In fact, we closed the day down close to the lows. The Dow was down 280 points, something like that, and down over 1%. Uh, The low of the day was down over 300, but we were close enough to the low. The NASDAQ not down quite as much percentage-wise as the Dow. NASDAQ down about 0.8%, 64 points. Russell 2000 down 1.5%. So the U.S. uh, small caps taking a bigger hit. The weakest stock index on the day was the transports down 2.5%. So a big drop in the stock market. But as the stock market was tanking, gold was soaring. Gold actually rose better than $30 an ounce. In fact, as I am recording this podcast, we're trading above $1,445 an ounce, up almost $32 on the day. So gold actually went below yesterday's low. And now we're, I think, right at yesterday's high, maybe even above it. In fact, we're within $5 of the upper end of the range I said we were in, $1,450 to $1,400. We almost hit $1,400 this morning, and now we're almost at 1450. In fact, if you look at the GLD, which is an exchange traded fund uh, that a lot of people use to buy gold, that uh, fund had an outside day today, a beautiful technical day where in the morning GLD was trading below the low that it set on uh, yesterday. Below the low. It opened below the low. And then it rallied. And not only did we take out the high from yesterday, we closed well above yesterday's high, right on the high of the day.
for GLD. That is about as bullish a technical sign as you're going to see. If we get a weak jobs report tomorrow, uh, we could have an explosive rally. We could be up 50 bucks. We might even break above 1500 to close the day and the week in gold at 1500 So we'll see what happens. But technically, we look very good. Gold stocks, which were clobbered yesterday, pretty much recouped all of their losses today. Some stocks actually did more than that. There were some gold stocks that gained even more than they lost yesterday to close at new highs. So the whole sector is looking good. Gold stocks, silver stocks, and we'll see what happens with the data tomorrow. But getting back to Trump's tweet that got this going, I think the reason for the tweet was a lot more calculated uh, than the financial media understands. Because yesterday, uh, the Fed only cut by a quarter point and they were not that dovish. They, you know, kind of, you know, left a lot of uh, ambiguity as to what they would do next. Donald Trump was obviously disappointed in what happened and the stock market went down and market was disappointed. So I think what Trump was doing was trying to take out a bit of an insurance policy on rate cuts because the Fed mentioned, and I know that they're lying, but this is what they're publicly stating, that the reason for the cut was because of the uncertainty regarding the global economy. So if the Fed is worried about uncertainty in the global economy, why not give them something else to worry about? Why not up the ante on the tariffs? Why not throw another monkey wrench into the global economy so the Fed will be even more concerned than they were before? So just in case they were thinking about not cutting rates, now that we have these extra tariffs, well, they're definitely going to cut rates. And so I think that the warning and the message that Trump was sending was not to China, because nothing's going to happen there. There's no progress being made with the Chinese. The warning sign uh, was being sent to the Fed. In fact, you know, look at the, 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 the data we got today on soybeans. I was reading an article that in the first half of this year, our soybean exports had collapsed all the way back down to the lowest they've been since 2004. And, you know, other exports are tanking. You know, Trump kept saying that the Chinese are going to be buying U.S. agriculture big time, big numbers, and nothing has happened. Remember, I kept saying that that was BS on this podcast. And now the official scoreboard is in. You know, I wonder if American farmers are tired of winning yet because they're clearly losing. So we're not making any progress. So I think this was designed uh, to just basically stir the pot a little bit more uh, to make sure that uh, the Fed cuts rates. But I think this is an insurance policy that Trump doesn't need because the Fed's going to cut rates because the U.S. economy is a mess despite what the Fed wants to say about how great it is. Despite what Trump wants to say, he repeated it again. He had a press conference again today, I think going to Air Force One. He's headed for a rally somewhere. And he was talking to the media about how this is the greatest economy ever. We have the greatest numbers ever. I mean, obviously, the president is not looking at the economic data, not even the economic data that is coming out today. I mean, look at the numbers we got on manufacturing today, PMI. Uh, is down at 50.4. I think that's the lowest it's been in 10 years. That was below estimates. We got some bad numbers today uh, on construction spending. They were looking for construction spending in June to go up 0.3 to improve on the prior month's 0.8% decline. What happened is we revised that decline uh, up from minus 0.8 to minus 0.5, so not quite as bad. 
But instead of rebounding in June, uh, construction spending fell 1.3%. So a much worse uh, number than had been expected. But also look at the ISM manufacturing number. This is the lowest number, I think, uh, since 2016. They were looking for an improvement over last month's 51.7. They were looking for 51.9. Instead, we went down to 51.2. Manufacturing week, construction week. I mean, the data is weak, yet everybody wants to continue to pretend uh, that the economy is strong. Well, pretty soon, they're going to have to stop pretending because it's going to be impossible to do that. You know, I also want to get back to the market reaction today because the biggest action was in the bond market. I mean, look at the yields. Yields collapsing today. One of the biggest moves down in yields and up in bond prices. The 10-year yield going all the way down to 1.894. That was the close. The low was a low print for the year. We got down to one spot 878. And of course, the spread between the 10 and the 30 year continues to rise as I have been predicting because yields on the 30 year did not collapse nearly as much as they did on the 10 year, but they did make a new low for the year. We got down to two spot four, two, three. We closed at two spot four, one, one. But why are bond yields collapsing? Because the markets are anticipating recession. They don't think the Fed is cutting fast enough. Of course, even if they cut faster, we wouldn't avoid the recession. It's happening anyway. But the bond market is reacting to the economic data that the Fed is ignoring. Uh, they are pricing in a recession, which is coming. The dollar also reversed today. The dollar index was higher in the morning uh, by quite a bit, ended up closing down on the day, but it didn't get totally destroyed. And, you know, the big gainer was the yen, you know, the safe haven currency. That one had the biggest jump. Uh, But there were other currencies, too, that were down against the dollar. So it wasn't like the dollar was weak across the board, but the dollar index did finish with some declines, but it's still very high. Uh, We'll see what happens tomorrow again. If we get a weaker uh, than expected jobs report, that could finally cause the dollar to start to fall. I mean, again, I think traders have got this wrong, uh, bidding up the dollar. And of course, they still don't understand the stagflationary impact that the next recession is going to have on the bond market. They still think uh, the next collapse is going to be like the last, uh, where interest rates are going to fall in response to Fed policy. I think this time they are going to rise. You know, also, Bitcoin, too, having a big rally today as we're speaking, or as I'm speaking, we're almost at 10500 So that's about, what, a 5% pop in the price of Bitcoin. The reason I think Bitcoin is rising right now is because I think people are speculating that the Chinese, who are going to be worried about the renewed trade tensions, the lack of a deal, the extra tariffs, that the Chinese are going to be worried about the yuan and about the currency going down and that they're going to buy um, Bitcoin as a safe haven, as a way to get money out of yuan uh, or out of China. And I think that people now are trying to front run the Chinese open. But I don't really think uh, a lot of Chinese are going to do that. I mean, if the Chinese are smart, they won't do that. I mean, they'll buy gold if they're worried about the yuan going down. In fact, Trump continues uh, to stick to his narrative that the Chinese are paying for all the tariffs, that American consumers aren't paying anything, that it's all the Chinese because their currency is being devalued. And their currency has gone down, but it hasn't gone down nearly 
uh, the amount of the tariff. So there's no way that the exchange rates are just basically eating those tariffs. Uh, but the yuan has gone down a little bit. But ultimately, the yuan is going to go up. You know, one of the things that Trump said today at his press conference that was really crazy, Trump said it'd be fine with him if the Chinese stopped trading with us altogether. That's what he said. We don't even need the Chinese. We can stop trading with us. I mean, how clueless can he be? I mean, imagine if the Chinese actually took Trump up on that offer to just cease all trading uh, with the United States. Let's think about uh, what would happen, right? Well, first, let's think about what would happen to China. Let's say the Chinese stopped trading with the United States. Okay, well, now they have to buy their agricultural products someplace else. It's not like we have a monopoly on wheat or soybeans or pork or whatever. They could stuff from South America. Maybe they'd have to pay a little bit more money for it. I don't know, probably, because if they could get a better deal, they'd already be shopping down there. So they have to uh, buy their, their farm products uh, from other countries. But they would have all this manufactured products that they are not selling to us. Well, maybe they can sell those products to the countries who they start to buy the agricultural products from. After all, those countries will now be selling more agriculture to China. They'll earn more money on those sales and they can use that income to buy some manufactured products from China. No problem. So they simply trade those goods uh, with other people. But to the extent that there's still some goods left over, all right, well, the Chinese citizens will go shopping and buy those goods and you know, fine. I don't think the Chinese will have any problems uh, if they're not trading with the United States. And in fact, if they stop trading with the United States, maybe they'll decide that there's no reason to hoard over a trillion dollars worth of treasuries. So maybe they'll start dumping their treasuries and dumping their dollars and doing something more productive with that money. Maybe they can pass on tax cuts to their citizens or maybe can move their reserves into gold so they have a real asset, not a BS uh, a liability or you know, a, a check that would bounce if they actually tried to cash it. So China would be fine. But what would happen in America if all trading with China stopped? Well, what would happen to all of these stores that are stocking these Chinese goods? Well, the, the shelves would be empty. Now, could we buy some of these goods from other countries? We could, but they would cost more money Right. I mean, that because that's why we're buying them from China. China's giving us a better deal. So if we couldn't buy from China, we'd have to find the next best deal. Well, for a lot of products, I mean, the next best deal is a lousy deal. The prices would be much higher or the goods wouldn't even be available at all. So without Chinese goods, uh, retail sales in the United States would collapse because we wouldn't have the merchandise for people to buy at prices they can afford. Well, then what would happen? Well, then uh, the layoffs would start because the stores aren't selling products. They got to lay off their workers. And now those workers can't buy products, even the ones that aren't imported. So the whole economy is going to implode when you pull the rug out from under it, which are all the products uh, that people are spending. If we have a service sector economy, if it's all retail sales. Well, if they don't have anything to sell, well, then the sales are going to go away. Uh, and the, the, the goods that are left in the United States, the prices will be much higher. So inflation domestically will be much higher. That will also put upward pressure on U.S. long-term interest rates. But so would uh, Chinese selling. If the Chinese aren't trading with us and they have no reason to try to prop up the dollar and they're dumping their treasuries, 
then that's putting even more upward pressure on interest rates. So as interest rates are rising, uh, corporate profits are plunging, not only are their sales down, but their interest expenses going up, mortgage rates are going up, uh, putting even more downward pressure on an already weakening real estate market. What's happening to the federal budget deficits, right? They're skyrocketing. You know, the Senate today, I think they've got enough votes now uh, to pass uh, the suspension of the debt ceiling and the blowing up of the caps and adding all this debt. And it's interesting, again, that the Republicans are not voting for this bill. It's the Democrats. It's Donald Trump working hand in hand with the congressional Democrats to run up the deficit. So why is he the hero of the Republican Party? Why is he the hero of conservatives if he has aligned himself with the big spending Democrats. The conservative Republicans will not sign on to this pork barrel swamp of a deficit exploding budget. You know, why is there not more outrage among the rake and file, right? If you think Trump is your hero, he's not the hero of the Republicans. He's not the hero of the conservatives. He is leading the charge and his troops are the big spending liberal Democrats. The Democrats that he likes to criticize Those are the ones who are passing the budget that he's anxious to sign, not the Republicans. They're opposing it, but they're not opposing it in a vocal enough manner so that they're going to have any credibility when they try to oppose the even larger deficits that a Democratic administration is going to be advocating. But as we go into recession, which we clearly will if we seesaw trading with China. So as we go into recession, these already exploding deficits are going to explode even more. So now we're going to have even more money to borrow. But who are we going to borrow from? Not China. China's not lending to us. In fact, China is re- you know returning. They're cashing in uh, the bonds that they have. So not only do we have to find buyers for all the new treasuries that we're selling, but we have to find buyers to reach place China on the treasuries that they used to hold, but now they haven't rolled over, right? Or they're selling in the market and some we're competing with China in the sale of treasuries. So the Federal Reserve is going to have to print money like it's going out of style. Uh, so, you know, this is another example of being careful what you wish for. But again, it shows that Donald Trump is clueless. He does not understand the dynamics of the trading relationship between the United States and China. He doesn't understand the crutch, the temporary prop that the American phony economy has enjoyed because of this relationship. Now, I know that long-term, this is a cancer on the American economy, that long-term, we're going to pay the price for having indulged ourselves the way we have. We've taken a shortcut, but it's leading us to disaster. Now, maybe Donald Trump recognizes that these trade deficits are bad in the long run, but he doesn't understand the, the value they've been as a subsidy in the short run. That's why this bubble economy hasn't imploded. And again, he still doesn't recognize that what we have is a gigantic bubble. I mean, he recognized it as a bubble as a candidate, but somehow he thinks there's been a major transformation in the last two years. Nothing has transformed. We simply made the bubble that he inherited even bigger by pursuing the same policies. It doesn't matter that we cut taxes a little bit. You know, Bush cut taxes too, but it was the same policy of deficit spending and artificially low interest rates to make it all possible. But it blew up in 2008 and they managed to blow air and inflate an even bigger bubble. It's blowing up now, but there's no way to repair the damage this time. They're going to try, but when they do, it's overdose. 
Now, while I'm on politics, too, I may as well comment a little bit. I actually watched more of last night's Democratic debates than I did of uh, the first night because I was kind of I was out to dinner and I wasn't able to catch as much of it. But I saw more of last night's and really some amazing stuff. You know, one thing I didn't even realize until the very end that Bill de Blasio, right, the uh, New York mayor, that his website is actually tax the hell. I'm not making that up. That's his website, taxthehell.com, which in a way, at least, you know, it's honest, right? Usually they don't admit they're going to tax the hell out of us. That's what the Democrats do. But this guy is actually saying, elect me because I'm going to tax the hell out of you. Although if you go to his website, it's the rich that he says he wants to tax the hell out of, right? I'm going to tax the hell out of the rich, right? But that's what they say, right? That's how they lull you in to to accepting it. But ultimately, he wants to tax the hell out of everybody. That's what Democrats want to do. And of course, they end up taxing the entire economy into hell, right? The economy goes to hell when they try to tax the citizens uh, to hell. But I thought that was ridiculous that, you know, he that's actually his his uh, his URL. But, you know, one of the topics that came up a lot in the uh, debate, again, was the idea that there is this uh, big differential pay gap for women, that women are getting paid 80 cents on the dollar and we have to stop this. And, you know, I don't have to, you know, get into that again. But this is the most ridiculous bunch of nonsense. There is no gender pay gap uh, because women are not doing equal work to men for 80 cents on the dollar. To the extent that women are being paid less than men, it's because they are delivering lower productivity to their employers than men for a number of viable reasons that generally relate to being a woman and the choices that women happen to make along their career path that are different on average than the choices that men make. And you know, a lot of women who are married, right? I think that the women who tend to earn less than men are the married women, right? If a woman is single and never married and never has kids, she probably earns pretty close to or maybe the same as a man. It's the women that stay home and take care of the kids that tend to earn less than the men, but they're married. They're sharing the income. So what difference does it make? You got to look at household income. So if the husband earns a little more because he's killing it, he's putting in 10, 12 hour days he doesn't, you know, he doesn't come home to take care of the kids. He works night. He travels. He's putting 100% into the career, but the wife is kind of putting more effort into the home life. What difference does it make if the guy is earning more when the paychecks are being shared uh, among the household? But, you know, I put, you know, put out a, a tweet about this because obviously the way you know that women aren't being underpaid is because it's a free market. If women really were going to do the same job as a man, just exactly the same productivity, right? The same value, but they were doing it for 80 cents on the dollar. People would only hire women. I mean, people, you know, bosses aren't idiots. You may think they're bigots and they're homophobes or feminists or whatever, but if you think business owners are greedy, why would we want to throw away 20 cents on the dollar? If I got a guy doing a job and I can just bring in some woman and she'll do the exact same job, and deliver the same amount of productivity, but I only have to pay her 80 cents, why wouldn't I take that deal? Why are all these businesses throwing away 20 cents? Just hire a woman and save the money. And the problem is if everybody tried to hire women because they were working so cheap, they would be bidding up the salaries of women to the point where they equaled the salaries of men. The reality is 
women's salaries do equal men when you adjust for productivity. So when you take a look at the entire compensation package of uh, you know, flexible schedules and travel and time off and, you know, how much time women, you know, are out of the workforce. There, There is no gap because there can't be a free gap in a free market because employers are bidding against each other for labor, right? And the market is going to clear. There, If there was a gap, the market would fill it. There'd be an arbitrage opportunity there between men and women. And what happens when there's an arbitrage opportunity? It goes away. As people enter the markets, they bid those disparities away. So this is all about getting votes, pretending that women are somehow getting exploited. This is all about trying to get women to vote for you. Remember, that's how Democrats work. They convince you that you're a victim. They convince you that you've been exploited. And the only salvation you have is to vote for some Democrat who's going to help you, who's going to get even for you, who's going to get revenge for you, who's going to force somebody uh, to, to do something, right? And again, it's about that's something for nothing, right? Who can give out the most free stuff, including forcing your boss to give you something that he's unwilling to give you? You can't get it in the free market, so vote for me, and I will extort the money from your boss and give it to you, right? And of course, since more people are our employees than employers, that's how you get votes. You promise to steal from the employers and give to the employees. You lose the vote of the employer, but you get all the votes of the employee, right? I mean, one thing the Democrats can do is they can count, right? They know where the votes are, right? Just like Willie Sutton knew where the money was, and that's why he robbed banks. You know, one thing, though, that pissed me off, there was a, uh, at least one, but maybe two of the white candidates were talking about white privilege and how, you know, white privilege is rampant and, uh, you know, they want to explain to other white people, I mean, how white privilege has worked and how so much of what they have is the result of white privilege, uh, not because of their own efforts or they worked hard, but because they just enjoyed being white and all the privileges uh, that come when you're white. And, you know, how, you know, we have to make this up to African-Americans, right? Well, you know, what I would like to see is any one of these Democratic candidates, these white candidates that feel so guilty about white privilege, right, that think that this is what defines uh, the American experience and that they're only on that debate stage because they're white and they benefited from privilege, just drop out of the race, right? I mean, why leverage your privilege? It's like you're cheating. Just step aside and allow all the candidates who are not white who did not get the benefit of white privilege, let make it easier for one of those guys to become president, right? It's only fair. I mean, if you benefited so much from white privilege, just bow out. That's the right thing to do, right? You cheated your way onto that debate stage. You're only there because you're white. Just step aside and let somebody who's not white, right, who had to earn it, had to overcome, uh, you know, the lack of white privilege, let one of those guys uh, be the next president. I mean, after all, we just had a black president, right? Somehow, this guy was a Barack Obama without white privilege, uh, you know, was able to somehow make it to the White House. So I don't know how we let that slip through. Uh, but, you know, they should bow out and, and allow somebody else uh, to become president. But anyway, uh, the whole thing was a farce. I mean, I can go on and on about all the nonsense. But again, as I said, you know, on yesterday's podcast, the, the worst part about the Democratic debates is that one of these clowns is probably going to be the next president. You know, people still don't want to admit that yet because they still think Trump is a shoe in even though he's behind in the polls. And it's because they think, well, he was behind in the polls last time and he won, so he can be behind in the polls this time. This is a different story. These polls are far more accurate. I've gone into that before, why I believe the polls are a lot more accurate now than I believed then. Remember, I did not believe the polls then. I was one of the people, one of the few people who thought Trump could win. 
that thought the polls were wrong. Well, now a lot of the people that thought Trump couldn't win think he's a shoe in to win again. But I think no. I think now uh, he actually is a long shot to win. And I've got a better track record on understanding the electorate than a lot of the people that had that thought Trump had no chance in 2016. And now they think he can't lose in 2020. A lot of it, though, is probably wishful thinking, because if people start to accept uh, that Trump is a one termer, uh, then that has some dire implications for the U.S. economy and the U.S. stock market. And a lot of people don't want to uh, even think about that potential. So they want to just, you know, pretend it doesn't even exist. They want to just block it from their minds by just assuming that Trump's a shoo-in just because all these candidates are so bad. Well, you know what? <laughs> the American electorate is dumb enough to vote for these guys, right? That That's the reality. And if we're in recession, that's exactly who we're going to vote for. Now, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about too, I've gotten uh, a few emails uh, people want me to discuss uh, Europe and the ECB and their asset purchase programs and their quantitative easing. And yeah, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that because I think the coverage of what's going on in Europe, like all the coverage, is wrong. Uh, I don't think anybody is really talking about the truth. And so I will talk about the truth, right? The real reason that the ECB has interest rates as low as they do. The real reason that they are going to restart the asset purchase program, quantitative easing, it's not because inflation is too low. That is BS. That is a ruse, right? Low inflation is not a threat. It is not a problem. Low inflation is better than the alternative of higher inflation. The only thing better than low inflation is even lower inflation. And the only thing better than even lower inflation is no inflation. And the only thing better than that would be deflation or falling prices, if that's how you're going to describe prices going up and prices going down. So there is no you know, threat to the European Union that is being posed by uh, consumer prices not rising fast enough. But the ECB is hiding behind that smokescreen to try to advance its real agenda. The real agenda of the ECB is to bail out those European countries that have too much debt, right? A lot of the southern countries, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, right? All these countries that have a lot of debt. They are trying to come up with an excuse to monetize that debt, to buy their bonds, to keep their interest rates artificially low. Now, why are they doing that? If you go back to the formation of the euro and the whole purpose was to get everybody into a common currency with one central bank that could not monetize the debts of any individual country. And that was supposed to impose discipline on those countries fiscally, because if they started to run big deficits, their interest rates would go up, right? So if France was running a bigger deficit than Germany, or Germany had a surplus, uh, the French would be paying a lot more money to borrow. Uh, and in order to bring their rates down, they would be forced to balance their budget or cut spending or raise taxes. And so there was supposed to be some fiscal discipline that was going to be imposed by all of these countries giving up their own central bank and having a independent European central bank that was not just beholden to any one country. And so it was supposed to uh, be an agent for fiscal responsibility. Now, at the time, I remember saying, I don't think it's going to work. This is BS. Uh, there's a big moral hazard here. I didn't expect it to work. And in fact, they actually built in safeguards. No country was allowed to have a deficit 
that was greater than 3% of GDP. And of course, a lot of countries had to fudge the numbers in order to get admitted into the European Union in the first place with bullshit numbers so that they can get in. But of course, initially, the idea that all of these European countries were going to be more fiscally responsible meant that a lot of countries in Europe that were used to having high interest rates, like Italy or France, right? All of a sudden, they had low interest rates. I mean, Germany had a history of low interest rates because they had a history of fiscal responsibility. And the Deutschmark was a sound currency. And so if you are borrowing in a sound currency that people have confidence in, you can have low interest rates. Nobody had confidence in the lira or the French franc. So the Italians and the French or the Portuguese or the Greeks, they historically had high interest rates because they had weak currencies, they had big governments, they created a lot of inflation, but now all of a sudden they're part of the euro and they're enjoying low interest rates. So what did they do? They took advantage of that. Politicians in Europe took advantage of the ability to borrow cheap to expand government and give their own citizens more of something for nothing. And what really helped was the US because we had brought interest rates down to 1% Uh, And we were doing quantitative easing. And so interest rates were so low in the United States that brought down interest rates in Europe to match our rates. And of course, since uh, you had the Eurozone, so not only did France and Italy have the benefit of having rates as low as Germany, but they had the benefit of even lower rates because our rates was allowing the rates that even the Germans paid to come way down. So it was manna from heaven, right, as far as the European politicians were concerned, right? They could promise all kinds of stuff, just like Puerto Rican uh, politicians took advantage of the fact that they could borrow all this money uh, to buy votes. So uh, the politicians, you know, borrowed a lot of money, made a lot of promises, gave away a lot of free stuff, just like the Democrats want to do here. So what's happening now, right? The bills are coming due. These countries have a lot of debt and interest rates were starting to rise. And But of course, the politicians don't want to cut spending. They don't want to raise taxes because that's not how you get reelected. So they want to continue to run these big deficits, but they don't want interest rates to really rise. They don't want the spread between their rates and German rates to really pick up because that's going to put a lot of downward pressure on their economy. And so the European Central Bank is really trying to spare the politicians of these indebted European countries from having to make the tough political choices that would be required uh, to stop interest rates from rising. So instead of uh, France or Italy cutting government spending, right, the ECB goes in and buys the bonds so they can keep spending money they don't have, keep going deeper into debt, but not suffer the consequences of rising interest rates. Now, if the ECB did not do this, then there would be pandemonium all over Europe. In fact, a lot of the politicians in countries like Italy or France or Spain, they would be railing against the European Union against Brussels. It would be a populist uprising of nationalism because they would then blame the economic problems on Brussels, on being in the euro. They would say they're trying to impose austerity on us. They're trying to force us to cut government spending and give up uh, uh, these benefits or they're trying to force us to raise taxes. So people would actually be calling for a return to the lira, a return to the franc, a return to the pesetta, right? That's what they would be doing. So in order to keep the European Union from imploding, right, because they're afraid that if voters have to choose between leaving the euro and cuts to their government's programs, that they might 
vote to leave the euro. So they're trying to hold the eurozone together by doing exactly what the euro was supposed to prevent. They are becoming an engine for fiscal profligacy all over Europe. And obviously the Germans have to be hating this. In fact, there is even a lawsuit that has been filed. There's another one now because the Germans are correctly pointing out that this asset purchase program is actually against the European Union Constitution because the ECB is not supposed to be bailing out uh, individual countries that have too much debt. They're supposed to be forcing those countries to deal with their debt responsibly, but they're allowing them to continue running up more debt with these asset purchase programs. And of course, the ECB is lying because they're saying, look, it's not about bailing out any one country. We have to save Europe from the specter of not enough inflation, which is BS. Right. It is all about doing a backdoor bailout of these countries because they're doing the only thing they can to try to preserve the eurozone. But it's not worth preserving if this is the mess that you're trying to preserve. Countries have to decide you want to be in the euro. You want to be in this currency. Then you cut government spending and you bring your budget into balance. If not, get the hell out. And if you want to go back to high inflation and high interest rates and an imploding standard of living, then, then do it. Because I think if a lot of countries were given the option uh, of leaving, they wouldn't leave, right? If push came to shove, they would do the right thing to stay in the euro because they realize that leaving would actually be worse than staying. But their their backs have to be to the wall and the, the European Union refuses to do that. Now, it'll be interesting to see if this court, right, in Germany, if they would actually side with the plaintiffs and rule that what the ECB is doing is unconstitutional, that they can't make up a BS excuse to do exactly what the Constitution was preventing them from doing, which is monetizing debts of highly indebted countries. And of course, what they end up doing is they end up passing the cost of that debt onto the more responsible uh, countries, which is not what they're supposed to do. It was designed specifically to prevent that from happening, and it is now actually causing it to happen more because the more the Italians or the French or the Greeks, whatever, think that they can push the cost of their government programs off on the Germans, well, they're going to keep on doing it. And, you know, the Germans get the short end of the stick. I mean, there's a lot of people that think, well, the Germany needs this so that, so they have an export market for their products, which is BS. They had plenty of export markets before the Eurozone. They don't need people to buy their products. People want to buy their products. They make great products. They can sell them anywhere they want. And if fewer Europeans can afford to buy them because they go broke with a weak currency, well, they'll, they'll sell the products to other Asian economies or they'll consume more themselves or they just won't work as hard, right? This is the same on nonsense that, you know, that China is at. Like China has to prop up America so it can keep selling products to America. That's BS. And um, Germany doesn't have to prop up Spain so it can keep selling products to the Spanish. That is a waste, right? Vendor financing countries or customers that can't afford your product is a waste, right? And it always ends uh, in, in huge write-downs, huge losses. And that's what's going to happen. It'll be very interesting to see uh, what happens legally. But, you know, we, again, we don't get the coverage, the correct coverage, because we get all this fake news out there that simply accepts these BS lines from Draghi uh, that, oh, no, we got to do something about inflation not being high enough. And, well, and what we got to do is we got to lower interest rates even more. We've got to make sure that even more bonds have negative interest rates. Look, if low interest rates solved problems, all the problems in the world would have been solved because look how low they are. Yet, no matter how low they go, the problems persist and then they lower them again 
I mean, maybe it would dawn on somebody that the reason for the problems is the lowering of the interest rates, right? That's why we have all these problems because interest rates are too low. The only way to solve the problems is to allow interest rates to rise. But no politician wants the problem solved because solving the problem means having to endure some short-term pain. So instead, we keep kicking the can down the road. But while we do that, we exacerbate the problems. And ultimately, we make the day of reckoning when we can't kick it down the road anymore that much worse. Oh, 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 oh,